this kind of preaching is not easy. The devil doesn't like it, and a lot of people don't like it, and are in perfect agreement with the devil. And so it makes it a bit difficult. I believe that God wants the message to be right. You don't get to heaven by being almost a Christian. You have to be one. And you either are or you aren't. That's all there is to it. You can't almost be saved and get there. I heard of a, an approaching wedding where somebody wanted to send a greeting to the bride and uh, best wishes and all that sort of thing. So they sent First John 4.18, which is, says there's no fear in love, perfect love casteth out fear. That's a good verse. But they were going to read some of these messages at a little party one night, and this, along with the others, was not read in advance carefully. <laughs> the Western Union made one of its colossal mistakes. And instead of sending 1 John 4.18, they sent John 4.18, which says, Thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. So that was almost right uh, in the text. Uh, it was John, but wasn't First John four eighteen. So you can't be in the neighborhood of right. You've got to be right. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. <coughs> when Jesus came. This old world was in a wretched condition, pretty much like it is now. They had famines and pestilences and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. Men's hearts were failing them for fear, and there was a form of godliness without the power. Demonism was rampant. They had hippies then, and they looked pretty much like they do now. Religion was cold and meaningless. They had excessive taxation. I've been preaching some about America in the early days in this bicentennial year. You remember that the Revolutionary War was fought partly on account of taxation without representation. <laughs> they ought to see it now with representation. <coughs> Religion had become cold and meaningless in those days when Jesus came. God's people were under the bondage of an alien power, and there was a faithful few looking for the Messiah. Now, they wore flowing robes, and we wear dress suits, but we worship largely the same gods, although by different names. And there's just as much ideal well idol worship and just as much ideally idol worship as ever and a lot more, because there are more of us. But when Jesus came, it made a difference. It always did. It made such a difference that all history and humanity, past, present, and future, are judged by their relation to Jesus Christ. Celebrities have marched across the stage of history and have made very little difference. But Jesus Christ is the test by which men are judged because he precipitated the crisis and every man's destiny is determined by what he does about Jesus Christ. I wish people knew John 3.19 as well as they know John 3.16.
And this is the condemnation. And the word is crisis in the original. Just spelled with a K. This is the crisis. That light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil. Now you talk about the crisis. It's never been Watergate or Vietnam or any of these things you've heard so much about. It's not uh, the recession or New York going broke or any of these other things that you are better informed about. This is the crisis. Jesus Christ precipitated the crisis because everybody has to do something about Jesus Christ. Now, that's critical. A man may make other decisions and be temporarily the worse for it. But if he makes a wrong decision about Jesus Christ, he is eternally the worse for it. When Jesus came, he made a difference in every life he takes. One day, a wicked woman started to a well to draw water, living in sin and shame, and she little dreamed that before sunset she'd be a new woman, start a revival that would convert the neighbors. And it all began because Jesus came and sat on the well. And through the centuries, these poor wretches from the outermost and the uttermost and the guttermost have found in him the answer to depravity to begin with. And he has lifted them from the sordid to the sacred and from bums to believers, breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. When Jesus talked to this woman, he talked about the water of life and where's the best place to worship and how to worship. But she did not get under conviction until he named the trouble. And that's why I believe in naming things. Go call thy husband. You see, she'd had too many of them already. Charles Finney used to have a sermon on how to preach so as to convert nobody. And he said, preach on sin, but don't name any of the sins of the congregation. They'll go out and say sin's bad, but they won't do a thing in the world about it. And she went back to her uh, townspeople and said, Come see a man who told me not about the best place to worship, not about the water of life. Come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? That's a mark of the Christ, and it's a mark of true preaching. Some folks call it meddling, and that it can be that, but when... Sin is named, and when we particularize and don't just generalize, somebody's going to get convicted. I heard of a preacher, an old preacher, who had preached a faithful sermon on the depravity of the human heart. And after it was over, a fellow came up after the benediction and said, I just can't swallow this depravity of the human heart you've been preaching about. The old preacher said, you don't have to swallow it, it's already in you. And I'd say tonight, whether you like it or not, you've got it. No argument about that. But Jesus is the answer. He lifts us out of a horrible pit and sets our feet on a rock and puts a new song in our mouth, even praise unto our God. Then Jesus came. And then there was another poor woman dying with an incurable disease, health all gone, money all gone, nothing left but faith. Thank God that wasn't gone. And there came a day that started about as miserably as any others before it, and she probably woke up that morning and said, Well, I wonder if we'll make it through the day. No promise, no prospect, nothing to live for. And she heard a commotion outside, and she looked out, and people were running from all directions, 
And she asked what's going on here, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth's going through town. And she said, that's my chance. If I can only get through to him, I believe, and if I can even touch his garment, I shall be whole. There ever was anybody who could have sung past me, not O gentle Savior, is this woman. Somehow this poor sick soul got herself together and wrapped some uh, old rag around her. She didn't have any money. Got into the crowd. I don't know how she did it. She was dying. She was penniless. And it's not nice for a woman to elbow her way through a crowd. And they don't do it unless there's a sale on at the department store. But here she went anyhow. I've got to get through to him. And if you were dying of an incurable disease, your money was all gone, and you knew that a few yards ahead of you was somebody who, if you could just touch them, you'd be well. You'd get that. You'd make it. When people get desperate, they make it. I'm sure some of those fastidious folks in that procession must have said, what does she mean barging up here, pushing through the crowd? Look at that old dress. Why doesn't she stay back where she belongs? But she made it. And all through that account in Mark 5, there are two little words that just keep bobbing up. It said the crowd thronged him, but she touched him. And Jesus stopped when she touched him and said, Who touched me? And poor old Simon Peter, always talking out of turn, said, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee? And why do you ask who touched me? Both words in that verse. Ah, but Jesus knew that power had gone out of him. And this was a different kind of a touch. And I've watched people go out of church so many times and I've wondered, well, they thronged him this morning, that's for sure, but did they touch him? Thronging him won't do it. You've got to touch him. And what a day it was for that one. Then Jesus came, that made the difference. And I think of that Gadarene demoniac, that maniac, that wild man that men couldn't tame, that chains couldn't bind, living in a graveyard, screaming and cutting himself with stones. Then Jesus came. And the demons departed into the hogs, and the man departed for home. And if you think there aren't any demoniacs today, think again. They're not all in insane asylums. They leer at you from the newspapers and television. You pass them on the streets. We've got an epidemic of demonism. You see it in alcoholism, drug addiction. You hear it in rock and roll. You read it in the hideous crimes. For this is not ordinary meanness you're reading about today. We've always had ordinary meanness. This is double, distilled, concentrated demonism because the time is short and the devil has pulled out all the stops and he's heated the furnace seven times hotter because his time's short. The psychiatrist has his name for it and the sociologists try to account for it and the liberal preachers say that Jesus was merely accommodating himself to the ideas of his time but he had the right word for it and he had the only cure for it because Jesus Christ is not only the answer to depravity and to despair in the cases that I've just mentioned, but he's the answer to demonism. There's no devil in the first two chapters of the Bible, no devil in the last two chapters, because uh, Jesus Christ moves through that book and defeats the devil. The Bible has the answer. <clears throat> then Jesus came. That's it. And it was a sad day in Bethany. Lazarus was ill and his troubled sister sent a call to Jesus. He whom thou lovest is sick. We preached about that there this week. And you remember that it says that he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So he waited two days. 
And when he got there, they were distressed indeed, but he raised Lazarus from the dead declared, I'm the resurrection and the life myself. And before that day was over, Lazarus was out of the grave and out of his grave clothes, and word was all over town, and the devil was mad, and the enemies of the Lord were alarmed. It makes a big difference in Bethany when Jesus comes. He's not only the answer to depravity and demonism and distress and disappointment, but he's the answer to death. You see, there's a whole string of these there that he's equal to. It happened again when he visited another little town called Nain and ran into a funeral procession. The only son of a widow was on his way to the uh, burial. Jesus did not conduct funerals. That's one thing he didn't do. He broke them up. You never learn how to conduct a funeral from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He didn't have funerals. He had resurrections. When Jesus came, death couldn't hold its victims. When he died, dead men arose and walked around. And when he comes again, all dead men are going eventually to rise. Jesus is the answer to death because he conquered death and through death destroyed him that had the power uh, of the devil and death and uh, deliver them who through fear of death for all their lifetime subject to bondage. We don't have to fear life because he said, I'm he that liveth. We don't have to fear death because he was dead. And we don't have to fear the future because he said, I'm alive forevermore. That takes in all the territory. He's the great I am. There's only one thing that Jesus ever was. He said, I'm, before Abraham was, I am. But there's only one thing he ever was. He was dead. But thank God He's the eternal contemporary today. He's the everlasting I am. The infinitude of Jesus Christ never put him in the past tense. And after my Lord rose from the dead, I read again, and I like the way it reads in the old King James. In John 20:19. then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus. It doesn't say Jesus came. It says came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad, and they saw the Lord. Now, if you're living in a closed-door session with your peers, you have the answer to them in two words, Came Jesus. You remember that after Pentecost they were assembled for fear. That's what we read here. And then it ends up, then were the disciples glad. He makes a change when Jesus comes. If you want to get happy, don't start looking around at church members. It doesn't say they were glad when Peter looked at James and John looked at Bartholomew. That'll make you miserable any time. Get your eyes on the law. Then were the disciples glad. But old Thomas wasn't there. He missed one prayer meeting and was an infidel for a whole week. You better go to prayer meeting. And uh, they had another closed-door session, and it says again, I love it, but Thomas was not with them when Jesus came, and he said, they said, we've seen him. He said, well, I'll have to see the print of the nails and thrust my hand in his side. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. What does it say next? Then 
King Jesus. Then is in italics. It's really not in there. So it says again, King Jesus. The doors being shut. Oh, how wonderful. Stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. And then he dealt with old Thomas and he said, Now you had to see to believe. Blessed are the folks that don't see and still believe. That's where you and I come in tonight. He was asking for a smaller blessing than he already had. He said, I got to see it. He didn't know that if he had gone on and believed anyhow, he'd have been ahead of himself on that. So I say to you tonight, we've got something in our favor. See, and believe in him anyhow. And Peter never got over that because when he sat down years later to write his letter, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believe him, rejoice. With joy unspeakable, full of glory. I think Simon Peter was thinking about that. Yet believing. You know, I've taken those two words that have done me a lot of good in my life. Sometimes when I couldn't feel a thing, couldn't see a thing, nothing looked real about it. I take those two words. I'm going to believe anyhow. Yet believing. So when Jesus comes that way, he dispels not only these other deeds, but he dispels discouragement and he dissolves doubt. Discouragement and doubt cannot coexist in the same room with the living Christ. You just can't do it. It was always like that when Jesus came. Four salty fishermen were about their business. Then Jesus came and promoted them to the biggest fishing business in the world. Fishing for souls. And there was a customs collector, a tax collector. They've never been popular in any day or generation. And he sat at a desk. Then Jesus came and said, follow me. And Matthew folded up his papers and started out to become one of the writers of the Bible. And then there was a little Jewish tax collector for the Roman government and he really was in trouble and that is so far as the folks were concerned despised he got caught in the crowd a little short fella it says built on the bungalow style couldn't see over the heads of the crowd and so he went up a tree do you know the Lord knows when you're up a tree he came along looked up and said come down Zacchaeus I've got a dinner date at your house today well that's the first Zacchaeus had heard about that I tell you, that was a day for him. And he came down, I don't know where, where he got saved, somewhere between the top of that tree and the ground. Because when he hit the ground, he said, I'm ready to straighten out all my crooked business dealings. I tell you, if some church members would get saved today, they'd wear out so leather carrying back things don't belong to them. He got right. And so Jesus is the answer to a problem like that. His depravity... And a little later, Simon Peter led the lonely disciples on a fishing trip that was a complete failure. I like to read about that because I think this is one fishing trip where they told the truth. They didn't come back and they didn't even say, you ought to have seen the one that got away. Next morning, Jesus stood on the shore and had breakfast ready with a fish cookout. And on that shore, he reinstated Simon Peter, the backslidden disciple who denied his Lord at one open fire and was reinstated at another open fire. And it's miserable, beloved, living between two fires. And I meet people today who have denied their Lord in the courtyards of this world. He was afraid to be true to Jesus. And a lot of folks are afraid to be Christians today, afraid you'll be laughed at, you deny him. 
And you ought to be out there warming yourself. Said Peter warmed himself at the enemy's fire. That's why some people get in so much trouble. I don't believe in condoning the things of this world today because it's warming at their fire. You get in trouble every time. But thank God there was another fire out there when he met Jesus on the seashore. And so Jesus is the answer to defeat. And a paralytic lay helpless day by day until Jesus came. And then four friends tore up a house roof to get him to the Savior. And if we tore up more roofs today, did the unusual, the spectacular, if necessary, to get people to Jesus, there'd be more miracles. And the man who came in with his back on the bed went out with the bed on his back. Something always happens when Jesus came. And have you noticed, beloved, Jesus Christ never neutralized anybody. They had to take a stand one way or the other. And I believe that we need that kind of preaching and presentation today that doesn't let people uh, take a middle-of-the-road course. My Lord said, if you're not with me, you're against me. There is no such thing as an inactive church member. There never has been one. Because if he's not gathering, he's scattering, Jesus said. And scattering is activity. Even one's activity. If you're not drawing people to Jesus, you're driving people away from Jesus by your very inactivity for Jesus. They say, well, he's a Christian. Not doing anything to him. And then there came a day when the only disciple who was left, a lonely man, sat on a desolate island in a restless sea. And John the Apostle was in exile on Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he might have asked, is this all I get for being a soldier of the cross and a follower of the Lamb to be banished in my old age to this forsaken spot? It looked like persecution, but it was promotion. One day Jesus came with his eyes like fire and his face like the sun and his voice like the sound of many waters. Now John had seen Jesus more than different ways than anybody else ever saw him. John saw him in the flesh. Then he saw him in his resurrection body, but he's got one on most of us, all of us. He saw him in his glorified body. Nobody else would have done that unless you want to count the amount of transfiguration. And when he was going around with Jesus in his first body, he laid his head on the breast of Jesus, it says. And he was the closest to Jesus of anybody else. But when he saw him this time, he didn't lay his head on the breast of that Christ. He dropped like a dead man. And I think today at some morning in church or any time in church we could get one little glimpse of Jesus Christ in his glory. We wouldn't go out of church saying the silly things we do a minute after we go out the door. We probably wouldn't have a word to say all the way home. We'd never get over it. Just one look at him with his eyes like fire and his face like the sun and his voice like the sound of many waters. That would do it. Jesus said to him, Now, come to because I 
I've come to give you a preview of what is to come, the meaning of history and the secret of destiny. I'm going to show you what's ahead. You know, at the World's Fair, they had Futuramas, and every once in a while, a TV puts on a Futurama, tries to tell us what the world's going to be like in the year 2000. Well, if 1975 is any index, I don't want to be around to see it. But I'd, it'd be worth a trip to Patmos to find out what it's really going to be like in the future. I remember spending five days in Jerusalem and getting up at five in the morning to look out over the old city and all the quiet around and before the dawn. And I thought of how Jesus stood around there somewhere and I was on the Mount of Olives then and wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent into thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathereth her chickens under wings, and you would not behold your house is left unto you desolate. And that's the word for it. I'm talking about old Jerusalem, not the new with all its apartment houses and all the rest, but that old one. You look out over a scene, it's, there's no other place on earth like that. And it occurred to me one morning as I stood there that between that, within those window frames, I was looking out on more history than I could see from anywhere else in this world. Condensed within the framework of one window, more things have happened with greater import than anywhere else and everywhere else in the world. We want to start way back to Abraham and come on down through the life of my Lord and Pentecost and all that's happened since three temples have risen and disappeared and Shishak and Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar and Antiochus, Epiphanes and Pompey and Titus and the Persians and the Saracens and the Turks and the Crusaders and Saladin and the Ottomans and Allenby have all left their tracks there and they've grounded into the dust and it has come up again and they've grounded in the dust and up it comes Jerusalem has survived glory in its past and glorious in its future. Jesus is not only the answer to depravity and despair and demonism and discouragement and doubt and defeat, he's the answer to Jerusalem's desolation. But he's coming back yet. And I stood up there that afternoon and I said, Lord, I don't know when you're coming, but I wish it could be this afternoon because my Bible tells me you're coming to this very same mountain, split it in two. I said, I'd sure like to see that happen. I'm here now, Lord. I said, in case you could come now, it suit me mighty well. I'd like to be on the welcome and committee. Well, he didn't come that time, but he's coming. And his feet shall stand in that day up in the Mount of Olives. And shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain will move toward the north. Half of it toward the south. You know, we've got that song, Your Redemption Groweth Nigh, and I love it. And you know, it says in it, Keep your eyes upon the eastern sky. Now, I don't know just what he was thinking about in that, but it ought to be spelled with a capital E. Because you keep your eyes on the Middle East, 
That's the center. And little Israel, not as big as New Jersey, hardly. That's the hub of the whole works. And although surrounded by Arabs in all directions, and the devil would like to tear it down, I don't know what may happen to it yet, but keep your eyes upon the eastern sky. That's the sense. And so I listen to experts on TV panels pooling their ignorance on the issues of the day. And I say, just like I say to when I am, one of my preacher friends says when he hears Walter Cronkite wind up saying, that's the way it is. He said, I always say, no, Walter. That's not the way it is. That's just the way it seems. That's not the way it is. But Jesus told us the way it's going to be. And so men today have found the Savior able. They could not conquer passion less than sin. Their broken hearts have left them sad and lonely. Then Jesus came and dwelt himself within. And Jesus comes with him to the power of broken. Jesus comes with tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom and fills the life with glory for all his change. And Jesus comes to save. Now I know what some of you are saying. You're saying, well, I wish I could have been in a meeting when Jesus came. I wish. Well, we have a dear song about it. It's a good song, but it sort of misses the mark in a way. I think when I read that sweet story of old when Jesus was here among men, how he called children as lambs to his fold, I should like to have been with them then. I wish that his hands had been placed on my head, that his arm had been thrown around me, and that I might have seen his kind look when he said, that the little one's coming to me. Well, that's sweet, and that's precious, and I know what he means, but... Uh, a lot of dear people are constantly saying, well, it would have been great if we could have lived when he really was around, when he was really there. Will you allow me to say tonight, dear friend, that he's here now? That you've heard it so long that it's getting to be like water on a duck's back to us Americans. We've heard it too much. Now you go to some mission fields today and they really believe he's there in the mission. And he's here tonight. I don't ask the Lord to be in a service. I never do. If we meet in his name, we're guaranteed that he's there. Now I ask that we may be conscious of his presence and that's the trouble. If we really thought Jesus was here tonight, I don't know when we'd ever get out of this place. I really don't. Well, what on earth are we going to do to get this thing into our consciousness? We've heard it so much and so long and so often. It's like a fairy tale. It's like Santa Claus. It's like all the rest of it. But yes, that's very lovely. It's very lovely. But he's not here now. If I thought he's not here now, I might as well quit preaching. What are we doing here tonight if he's not here? What are we here for? Habit, custom. Unless you really believe that he's here. And he hasn't changed. And he'll meet the need of everybody in this place tonight. 
But the difference is all these folks that I read about were desperate people, just about every one of them. And all through the Bible, the people that got the greatest blessings from Jesus were desperate people. Moses at the Red Sea, David and Goliath, the lepers in the gate of Samaria, Gideon and the three hundred, Bartimaeus and Jairus and the centurion and this poor woman in the crowd and the Syrophoenician and Mary and Martha, all of them desperate. And they got to him and they got what they needed. But there was one chap in the Gospels who stood head and shoulders above all of them. He had manners and he had morals and he had money, but he missed it. He never got it. He walked away and left it. Because he could take it or leave it. And as long as you can take it or leave it, you'll leave it. It's only desperate folks that really get through. And all over this country, I have looked over my congregation and wondered, do we have any desperate folks here tonight? You never know. Sometimes they've got a stiff upper lip and wearing a smile when their heart's breaking. There are people right here tonight with enough troubles to fill a book. Home trouble, business trouble, physical trouble, mental trouble, troubles about the future, troubles about what to do. Young people, I think young folks today don't know what, why youth today in a time when the morals have all been thrown in the waste basket and homes have gone to pot and teenagers live in apartments instead of with dad and mom and college students live like man and wife in dormitories and all the filth of Sodom and Gomorrah is thrown at us. Kids grow up with it all week and then expect on Sunday an hour to counteract all that. You got trouble. Some of them get desperate, thank God, but unfortunately they turn to drugs or they turn to liquor or they turn to a lot of other things. They don't get through Jesus. But if you're desperate, you will. I want to ask you tonight, do we have any desperate folks here? Do you have a desperate need of the Lord? Now, everybody has it ordinary needs. We could sing, I need thee every hour. I'm not talking about that. Do you have a special need of Jesus for body, mind, or spirit, for yourself or for somebody else? And it causes you to lose sleep sometimes and brings tears to your eyes and it's desperate. Now, if you got it, you know it. Don't try to think it up because if you have to think it up, you don't have it. You brought it along with you, and you know it. It sticks closer than the brother, and it's about the most real thing you know anything about. You've never had so many of them. And yet, somehow, they go to everybody else but Jesus. And I'd just like to know tonight. Do we have anybody here tonight who can honestly, yes, we do, if you're desperate, you will do something about 